thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. There's a whole cornucopia of information about your ancestry at your fingertips. All you have to do is send a saliva sample to a company like 23andMe, or Ancestry DNA, and they'll get back to you with some detailed data. For a fee, of course. This is a growing and an assertively marketed industry that helps people find relatives by comparing their DNA with that of others in the company's databases. For many, the results help flesh out family trees they already recognise, or lead to exciting and surprising discoveries about ancestors. Others including people adopted as children or conceived with donor sperm, can resolve long-standing questions about their birth parents. But sometimes the news can be a shock. NPE, shorthand for non-paternity event, or not the parents expected. Hmm. Genealogy is our subject this week. According to Libby Copeland, who has written a book on this, the basic science employed by these commercial companies is sound. Here she is speaking on The Naked Scientists. DNA testing is extremely accurate when it comes to predictions of genetic relationships. So are you my relative? Now, it can't necessarily tell you precisely what the relationship is, but it can tell you a range of genetic overlap. Basically, you and I share certain identical segments, and that can predict the level of relationships. So for instance, a half-sibling relationship looks really different from a third-cousin relationship. And that's a very close relationship, a sibling relationship, a parent-child relationship, a first-cousin relationship. All those things are so close that they can help you unravel more tendrils of information. And that 
simply does not come out wrong for people, right? You don't get a prediction that someone's your brother and they're actually just a genetic stranger to you or a fourth cousin. So that stuff is really accurate. Given the fact that all modern Y chromosomes descend from one single man who lived at some point in the past, let's call him Adam, and all mitochondrial DNAs descend from one woman who also might have lived at some distant point in the past, yes, Eve, it seems surprising to a genetic novice like me that present-day commercial data can be so precise. My guests this week are the molecular biologist, Professor Dennis Alexander, Emeritus Director of the Faraday Institute here in Cambridge, and author of the forthcoming book, Are We Slaves to Our Genes? And Tara Zamet, former Wolf Institute Enfield Scholar and now our Communications and Digital Media Officer. Tara is an officiado of genealogy, having researched in this area for many years. So what is it about family history that pulls us in? Why does it matter at all? Dennis, let's start with you. Well, clearly, I think our own family history is as traditionally and presently of huge interest to everybody. We like to know where we came from. We like to know what our ancestry is. We like to know if we have some distant relative, maybe in some far off continent we didn't know about. And so this is full of fascination for most people. I think also there is a kind of a anticipation or an interest or sometimes a dread really in finding out more about your own chances of developing some disease later in life. With 23andMe, you can sign up for, of course, different prices for different levels of information input from them. But you can get some probabilistic kind of genetic predictions about your chances of developing certain diseases and so on. And so this kind of information is not something that everyone will want and can lead to some worries that needn't really be there. Because I think we have to remember this is probabilistic information and a lot of it is not certain information. So what we're talking about here in terms of 23andMe, what they're looking at actually is what we normally call SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms, which are variants. We all vary in about one out of a thousand, every thousand in our SNPs between each of us. And so that gives a kind of genetic map, as it were, of our whole genome, our whole DNA. And they are often found to be close by other portions of the DNA that actually do interesting things, okay, that make a difference to our lives in some way medically or in other respects. So we're talking here about genetic variants. We're not talking about us, as it were, having different genes from each other, just to clarify that point for anyone who might be uh, confused on the language here. And then there's also the genealogy, which is more my speed, as genetics was my worst subject in school ever, in terms of looking at archival sources and using different sources that way, tracing family history in terms of looking at church records, baptismal records, marriage records, that type of thing which is where my interest lies. Of course, when you discover something surprising, it can have a dramatic impact on you, not simply about a medical condition, but about one's identity. I think it was Catherine Nash who wrote a book about the Irish diaspora and a number of American Irish who considered themselves full Catholic Irish discovered they had Protestant ancestry and suddenly their identity changed. Is that something that you've picked up at all, Tara? Because I know you have a sort of personal interest in this. I know of someone who ended up taking a test. Often these companies will have the option for you to contact other people who have similar genetic backgrounds as you. And someone reached out saying, hey, is your grandfather's name this? And he said, yeah. And it turns out that they had the same maternal grandfather and that the grandfather had had two separate families that he'd maintained without the families knowing about each other. The grandfather passed away, so he couldn't answer any questions for them, which they had many 
but these cousins now keep in touch, visit each other, contact each other. So I think you can figure out some pretty interesting and and surprising stuff. (laughs) And is this what makes programs like who do you think you are so compelling and so interesting? Because we can kind of relate to this celebrity figure and then be shocked by what they discover. Well, I think so. And I think it makes them feel more relatable, too, if you're into the whole celebrity thing. It makes them feel a bit more human. And I remember when I was younger, seeing an episode with Cindy Crawford, and she was traced directly back to Charlemagne. And I thought that was just incredible. You know, he's born in seven, I think 748 or something. But then you realize that that's a gap of like 41 generations, which is you know, pretty substantial, but it does make them feel a little bit more real, I guess. Just coming uh, to that cold question, I think going back in time, I, I, I do think it's fascinating and I love watching those programs about family history and find them really engaging. On the genetic side, it's worth mentioning here that, of course, the genetic ancestry doesn't follow the same track as you might expect. So you can look at your family history, you look at a great family tree going all the way back. I apparently have some ancestry with Jane Seymour and all that kind of stuff. So we called our daughter Jane Seymour. Uh, So I don't think she really appreciated that, but there we go. Anyway, and you can go back, you know, for centuries, and it looks very impressive. Now, when you look at the genes, though, what people often forget is that during the uh, generation of the sex cells, you have something called meiosis. You have this crossing over of material between the two chromosome pairs, okay? You suddenly find that after about eight generations going back, you haven't got any DNA from that person at all. It looks like you should have from, you know, just your simple ancestry tree. But in reality, you probably don't have any. And the simple reason is, statistically, because of that crossing over going on, it gradually weeds out so many of those genetic variants you might expect to have. So I think it's just worth flagging that up as well, that ancestry, looking at the family tree, is not the same, actually, as genetic ancestry. Uh, And it's not identical. It's related, but it's not identical. So let's discuss the science a little bit behind genealogy. Dennis, help explain it to us. What is it that started the science of the DNA in the first place? Give us the background. If you want to start out the science of DNA, you have to go way back to the 19th century, and then you have to go back to people like Weissman, who originally demonstrated that uh, the transmission of genetic information is in the germ cells and not in the what we call the somatic cells, the cells that make up the rest of your body. So the germ cells are the sex cells, the cells that pass on our genetic inheritance to the next generation. And of course, Darwin didn't know this. And Darwin had his own particular theory, by the way. Uh, he talked about gemules. He thought that there were kind of bits of information shed off the somatic cells that would then somehow be accumulated and passed on to the next generation. And he himself realized this was very speculative. So he was always worried about it. He was, Darwin was worried about everything, but he was worried about that because he just thought, you know, that it doesn't really fit all the data anyway. But it wasn't really until much later. Then, of course, you get genes. The word gene wasn't invented till the early part of the 19th century. And then, of course, you have to leap forward until the early 1950s and the discovery of the double helix structure by Watson and Crick and so forth, which really transformed the field. In this wonderful nature paper that was only about a page long, <laughs> one single page in nature has changed genetics and molecular biology forever. Okay, a very dramatic story, of course. It's been a long story. It's been a long way coming. And I think the sequencing of the human genome, which first started coming out in the early part of this century, really, again, has transformed the field by showing us how few protein encoding genes we have. It's only about probably around 20,500 genes we have, which actually encode proteins, although the number is being revised all the time. 
so it's a long and developing history. This is fascinating, I think, really fascinating. And is it something, Dennis, that can help us grapple with COVID-19? Can it help us understand that? Can it help us deal with a disease like that? Or, or, or am I way off? No, it certainly can help us, um, help us greatly. In fact, it's to the credit of the Chinese scientists who first uh, started looking at coronavirus in Wuhan that they published the sequence online of this little RNA coronavirus. It's not so little, actually, as coronaviruses go. And that has been a great help to the scientific community because it means that immediately you can see what kind of a coronavirus it is. There are many, many, many coronaviruses. But you can see, for example, interestingly, that it encodes its own self-repair mechanism, which is one reason why it's unlikely to evolve very fast because it's correcting its own mutations. And that's sort of quite interesting to know. Some viruses do that, others do not. It's also, of course, given uh, an open door for the development of vaccines. You're listening to Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler, and my guests this week are Dennis Alexander and Tara Zamet. While the tracing of an individual ancestry is quite an accurate process, establishing the ethnic element of someone's makeup is more tricky. Here's Libby Copeland again. The ethnicity estimates, which are very popular in the United States, where you get a little pie chart that tells you you're a certain percentage this and a certain percentage that, those are a little bit more nuanced and can vary from company to company because they are um, what the companies like to call an evolving science. Well, an evolving science. What then are the pitfalls of ethnicity estimates? Tara? Well, so I know personally that a lot of these companies are constantly updating their DNA processes online, or at least the data that they release to their consumers. So I know of people who've done tests and it's said that they're 6% Spanish or Iberian Peninsula. They have some kind of family background there. And they ask their family about migration stories and histories and where did this come from? And then a couple months later, they'll receive an update and that ethnicity estimate is totally changed and they're no longer Spanish or whatever it is that they believed. So I think it can lead to some you know, misunderstandings about your background and who you are, if that's what you're thinking about in, in those terms. Yeah, I think the that is a problem. And I think there's a lot of um, exaggeration sometimes in the interpretation of some of these results. I think you're exactly right. Uh, and also, given the implications, as you say, I think that's quite serious, in fact, or can be quite serious in some cases, or lead people down all kinds of wrong tracks. And just sort of stepping back a little bit, in a sense, I think the important point here is that Genetic variation, I think, always undermines uh, racist ideas totally. And the reason for that is, um, it turns out, we all uh, vary from each other all around the world. Uh, but to, actually, it's much higher percentage than people had realized. We, we vary from each other about 0.5% of the whole of our genome. And that's, that's a lot, actually. So it's not just single nucleotide polymorphisms, which are some are less, but also in insertion deletions, we call them, the structural variants. If you add up all the various forms of variation in the genome, as I say, it's roughly about 0.5%. And, th and that's right across the world. So we all vary from each other. I vary from you, uh, people I'm talking to now, in about 0.5% of my genome. I wonder if we could move the conversation on uh, to the question of faith. Uh, you and I, Dennis, in previous uh, years and days have talked about one's religious identity. And it's not so much the question of science versus religion, but the question of what does our work and our understanding of our ancestry, does that have any impact on our identity in terms of faith or is it absolutely unconnected? Well, I guess the first thing to highlight would be we, humanity, we all have the same 
genome, essentially. Although, as we were talking, it's very 5.5%. But essentially, that genome is used in our development to pump in a lot of information. So we are expressed as human beings who have very similar characteristics. And that anywhere in the world that you go to, there are certain anthropological, sociological characteristics of humanity that that are just are, are there. You can't avoid them. We have language. We have free will. I would say it's a universal characteristic. We have free will. You can't get away from it. It's simply part of the package deal. Okay. So we have moral responsibility. There has been no community of any kind ever discovered without some sort of religious belief. Religion does seem to be universal as part of humanity's characteristic. Now, now and again, you'll get an anthropologist who thinks that they couldn't find any religion in this particular tribe in the Amazon or something, but then other people have gone back and studied the language better and then they discover they do have an equivalent. It's a sense of transcendence or a sense of spirituality and whatever that might be. Anyway, so I think, you know, that would be the first place I'd go, that genetics is part of the great unification, the great unifying factor, if you like, in our discussion about what it means to be a human being. In terms of religious institutions as well, they can be really excellent sources in terms of tracing your genealogy. So I've often looked at church sources online, for example, just my background being Christian and looking for sources in that way. So baptismal records, marriage records, that type of thing. And often those sites tend to be hit pretty badly in times of conflict. So it can make it difficult to preserve records. But religious institutions play a really big part in terms of doing your own research. And I believe the the Mormons have a huge uh, database in particular because of their theology about ancestry and its importance in their religious beliefs. What about the security of data? This has been a concern in the wider public. When you undertake research, how do you deal with the ethics of such delicate information? Sequencing is a bit like getting a genetic fingerprint. It's interesting, a few years ago, you know, a number of people were donating their DNA anonymously and they agreed that their sequence should be posted on the web, you know, for other scientists to be able to use, or at least on certain sites that have can be accessed by scientists who want to do research on genomics and so forth. And, of course, what they discovered was, in fact, that they could be identified simply because of the great mass of genomic data there is out there. And all you need to know, really, especially what helps is if there are people down the road in the village next door who also gave DNA, and another person down the road who also gave DNA quite close by, And you can sort of discover, actually, who the person is in some cases simply by mapping all that data into various software programs that will enable you to do that. There is that risk. We all know that DNA data can be misused. And there's already been some famous court cases where, you know, DNA data has been used for forensic arguments to try and implicate people who maybe weren't involved in the crime at all and, and those kind of stories. So. There was one example that I was looking at, and it was the Golden State Killer. They'd had DNA samples for years and didn't really know what to do with them. They were kind of sitting as evidence. And then a cousin or something had uploaded a DNA sample onto a website. They were able to connect that DNA back to this person years later, which is pretty like incredible, but also brings in ethical questions of using that material and what you actually consent to when you provide these companies with your information. And how long they are allowed to keep that information. What is your view on that, Dennis, in terms of the keeping of DNA material? So I think a lot of it depends on who is doing the keeping. In other words, now, of course, there are there's pressure right now for everyone to have a genome sequence um, stored by the National Health Service, right? Um, you know, which I could see would be hugely beneficial, actually. I can see it. there's a lot of positives in this. Let's highlight here the positive aspect. 
Uh, and sometimes it can be quite a simple thing like, how will this patient respond to a particular drug? And you can predict from genomics uh, to some degree how different people are going to respond and whether they'll get bad side effects and so on. So it's valuable information to know. Then the question really is, well, how long do you keep that, those data? <laughs> and the thing is, um, I, so as a scientist, I have to say, I would hope as long as possible, okay, simply because you can then start tracking down to the generations. You get a much bigger database if you allow it to be around even after somebody's died. I realize that's controversial, and I can see the negative side of that too, and the dangers of release and dangers of hacking and all the rest of it. But if I'm speaking purely with my scientific hat on, my hat on as a geneticist, I would want to say I want it as long as possible because I think medically that would be hugely valuable. But ethically, there are problems, aren't there? Tara, would would you think and, and unpack some of the ethical issues? I think when people sign up to give their samples, they don't read the terms and conditions and they don't always know exactly what it is they're consenting to. And there are some concerns there. So 23andMe kind of came under fire a bit with the FDA in in the United States about the information they were telling people about their health. Also, when you're using these sources or when you're using these sites and you upload your family tree or your genetic data and you choose the option to share with others, you can have thousands of fourth cousins or whatever contacting you and asking for pretty personal information, which is amazing in some ways, especially like, you know, if you're an adopted person seeking family or anyone seeking family, but it can also seem a little bit invasive sometimes. So it's something I tend to avoid because you are putting a lot of your own information out there and it can be a little risky sometimes. You don't know exactly how it's being used or protected. I think this does highlight the point very much. It depends very much where that DNA information is being stored. Is it being stored by a commercial company like 23andMe? They're there to make money. I mean, that's what they want to do. Or is it being stored by uh, some medical system such as the National Health Service that we would want to look after it well and that information carefully and use it well? Well, I can't end without asking you about love. Is there such a thing as the DNA of love? Oh, I like the pause. I don't know what my parents would say. (laughs) So the way I've kind of interpreted that question is looking at familial love and like the stuff that we learn through family history research. You know, you find out you're related to so-and-so or this event happened. Does that mean suddenly you love them or there's some connection? And the whole reason I became interested in doing genealogy, I guess, was when I was only about 10. It was shortly after my grandfather passed away. He was Maltese and he lived through World War II in Malta. And when I was younger, I couldn't appreciate his experience and understand what he'd been through. And then after he passed away and as I got older, I realized I had all these questions about my family history and his story and everything like that. And it was through doing this type of research and you know being fortunate enough to visit his hometown and meet his family and these types of things that created an even deeper connection with him, I guess, and with my family's past that way. So I think it depends on everyone's experience. But for me, it's about creating that connection with the people that we can't ask those questions anymore and to feel like we can connect with our history. So the genome is such, our human genomes are such, that um, they contribute to the complex development of human beings, together with a huge amount of integrated environmental information and uh, epigenetic changes, and we can go on. But the outcome, and that's the bit we're interested in here, I think the outcome is human beings who have the capacity for love. And so in that sense, without human DNA, we wouldn't have this kind of human love that we all experience. So yes, in one sense, not that there is a love gene, (laughs) no, uh, and not that you know there are 
particular determinants and of DNA that will allow some people to love more than others. I don't think that's the case, but we have a human genome that leads to the development of loving human beings. And I think that's hugely important. And I'm using love here, I have to say, a little bit, Not I'm not, not talking about sex, I'm talking about agape, I'm talking about the kind of love that would be highlighted certainly in my own Christian type of framework in that the love that's really valued is love that gives to other people without expecting a return of any kind. And that kind of love, I think, is a very striking feature of humanity. And by the way, I think a love with all the cynicism and all the criticism going on right now in the middle of this pandemic, and we can easily criticize governments and the handling of it. That's pretty simple to do. What what strikes me more, I think, is simply the wonderful uh, cooperation and collaboration and love, indeed love, agape love, that the whole pandemic has brought out. Because I think so many people, especially in the NHS, in the care services and care homes, many other aspects of life as well, really giving themselves in a remarkable way to care for others without expecting anything in return and sometimes expecting coronavirus infection in return, actually. So I think that's quite remarkable. Is DNA connected to that? Well, distantly, yeah, because without human DNA, we wouldn't be here with these kinds of characteristics. Family, love, agape. Well, a perfect end of the line. Thanks to my guests, Dennis Alexander and Tara Zamet. And thanks to you two for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with any comments, thoughts or reflections of your own, you can email nakedreflections at wolf.cam.ac.uk. And let us know what subjects you'd like to hear more about and how you'd like us to cover them. We'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to Naked Reflections podcast wherever you access your podcasts or at nakedscientists.com slash reflections. Do join us next time. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.